You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone. My apologies to anybody waiting for the Winter War Part 4, but unfortunately it just did not happen this week. So instead I'm going to bring another episode out of the member episode archives. This episode is a bit different because instead of focusing on one topic or event from the war, it instead focuses on a single book, Shattered Sword, The Untold Story of the Battle of Midway. During the episode I discuss not just the subject covered by the book, the Battle of Midway, but also how the authors, Jonathan Parshall and Anthony Tully, approach the subject in a very informative and, and I think really interesting way. With this being the first book review to show up on the podcast, let me know if you like it or hate it or really feel strongly about it in any way. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War Members Episode 18, a review of Shattered Sword, the untold story of the Battle of Midway by Jonathan Parshall and Anthony Tully. Those who follow me on social media know that over the last month or two, I've been doing what I call some free reading, which basically just means reading books about the Second World War that are not immediate research needs. So for example, I've read An Army at Dawn, The War in North Africa, 1942-1943 by Rick Atkinson, about Allied landings in North Africa as part of Operation Torch, and Empires in the Balance, Japanese and Allied Pacific Strategies to April 1942 by H.P. Wilmot. And I've also given a read to Shattered Sword. Now this book is by far the most mentioned book any time I ask people for what I should read about the Second World War. Such glowing and consistent feedback honestly made me a bit hesitant, but, but it was certainly on the mark. Due to how much I enjoyed this book, I thought I would try something different for the members episode this month, and this will be a book review. Book reviews of some kind have been a type of episode that has often been requested by listeners of my podcasts, and while I have made a few attempts to do so over the years, none of them have in my mind, been fit for release. I have a bunch of MP3s with bad book reviews on my computer. Since you are hearing this episode, obviously this review is different. Much like the primary source review that featured so heavily in Members Episode 17, this is something of a pilot episode, and it's very likely that over the coming years, the podcast will feature more book review content I think it could be an interesting thing to discuss, you know, once I get the form sorted out and figure out what a book review means for me and means for the podcast. 
Those future episodes probably will not be members episodes. I don't really think it fits with what I want the members feed to be, but for this first one, hopefully it is a worthy addition to the catalog. The general structure of this episode will be in three parts, a quick overview of the topic of the book, a discussion of the approach that the authors use, and then how successful I feel the authors are at using that approach when creating a book that other humans might want to read. As always, and especially for this episode, please feel free to drop some comments on the Patreon page about this format and this episode and what you'd like to see different or or in addition in the future. The Shattered Sword travels very well-covered ground when it comes to the Second World War, the Battle of Midway which occurred from June 4th to 7th, 1942. This battle revolved around an attempt by the Japanese Navy to land an invasion force on the island of Midway, which was in the Hawaiian island chain. Placing Japanese troops and more importantly aircraft on the island was seen as a way of extending out the Japanese defensive perimeter into the Central Pacific. The entire operation was one of several options that the Japanese had in early and mid-1942 as they attempted to take advantage of their incredible string of successes that they had experienced during the first six months of the war in the Pacific. Of course, if the Japanese were planning on landing troops on Midway, they had to deal with the fact that the United States Navy did not want Japanese troops on Midway. And so there was the expectation that some kind of naval battle would occur as the Japanese moved closer to their destination. To deal with this fact, there would be two primary groups of Japanese ships. The first built around four fleet carriers of the Kido Butai, which were the carriers Akagi, Kaga, Soryu, and Hiryu. These were all veterans of the Pearl Harbor operation of the previous December, and then the Indian Ocean raid that had occurred in the time between. They were the most experienced aviation units in the Japanese Navy, and they would be joined by a large surface fleet built around the battleship Yamato, but this collection of surface vessels was in what would be called distant support, several hundred miles away. Like several of the other major confrontations in the Pacific, Midway would be almost entirely a battle of aviation units of the two navies. There would be some minor interactions with submarines, but no surface ships would engage one another. The first part of the operation would be a Japanese airstrike against the island, and then as that strike was underway, and they began to prepare for a second strike, American aircraft arrived and attacked the Japanese carriers. The Americans had learned of the Japanese plans through signals intelligence, which was quite a coup for the American intelligence services, and it allowed them to prepare to meet the Japanese force with three carriers, the Yorktown Enterprise and Hornet. There would be a whole series of airstrikes by the American and Japanese carriers that I won't run through in this quick summary, but the outcome would be decisive. On the American side, they would lose the Yorktown, 150 aircraft, and roughly 300 casualties. But on the Japanese side, all four fleet carriers would be sunk, 250 aircraft destroyed, and there would be over 3,000 killed. Obviously, those are very one-sided numbers, and Midway would be seen quite rightfully as a major victory for the American Navy, which up to that point had not really had such a one-sided kind of success. Over the last 80 years, Midway has achieved almost mythical status within the annals of America's war story. The idea that the Americans persevered against massive odds plays quite well into the kind of heroic narratives that all nations like to cultivate. The United States is no different, and Midway is an example of that. This brings us to the book and its approach to telling the story. The authors are very adamant that they want to, in many ways, attack the myth of Midway. 
This comes in two forms. They attack the very detailed pieces of the story that have not been correctly told over the years, while also looking at the bigger picture, which also plays an important part of the myth. One specific example of the first is the idea that when the first American airstrike arrived at the Japanese carriers, the decks were full of aircraft that were just waiting to be launched on a strike against the American carriers. Like, basically the myth is that they essentially arrived just in time to prevent this strike. The strike was initially held in reserve for this very purpose when the ships, when the other planes went to go attack Midway. But then it had been partially rearmed to be used as a second strike against the island, before again being swapped back to anti-ship armament for the strike against the American carriers after news of the American carriers arrived on the Japanese ships. This idea of the American aircraft arriving just in time to stop the strike from being launched is very evocative, but it is an idea that the authors go to great lengths to disprove. They attack this myth by investigating how the Japanese actually prepared aircraft for launch on their carriers. Unlike some other navies, the Japanese armed their aircraft in the hangars, not on the deck, and there were limits on how quickly they could rearm the aircraft. These limits were based on the number of men available to do the swapping, but also on the number of carts available to transport the munitions up from the magazines. Due to these processes and these limitations, there were limits on how quickly a strike could be prepared, from the time that it was ordered to the time when it was fully armed and could be moved to the deck to begin the process of warming up the engines. The authors literally just start counting forward from the time that the news arrives of the American ships and the order is given to the time that the, sh the planes could have been ready to launch. So they talk about, you know, okay, so they have to take off the bombs that would have been used against Midway, and then they have to swap some, some brackets on some of the torpedo planes so that they can carry torpedoes instead of bombs, and they have to start loading up the new bombs and new torpedoes which would have been used against the American carriers because they, they have to be anti-ship varieties of armor-piercing. Basically, they arrive at the conclusion that it was impossible that the Japanese ships would have had their aircraft on the decks when the Americans arrived. There simply was not enough time for what needed to happen before the aircraft would have been moved to the deck. The obvious question would be, why didn't they move a partial strike to the deck, or could they have moved just some of their aircraft, which could have been the source of the myth, maybe, you know, if half of the strike package was on the top, then maybe things could just be confused. But this was also impossible, due to the fact that the combat air patrol requirements of the Japanese formation meant that there was a constant need to launch and recover fighters to provide that combat air patrol. This meant that the Japanese carriers really had to time operations quite carefully, so that there were enough fighters airborne with enough fuel that they could quickly move all of the attack aircraft to the deck get them warmed up and take off before any airborne fighters needed to land. At a higher level, the authors also look at some of the myths that have been built up around the consequences of the Japanese defeat. Traditionally, the disaster that the Japanese Navy experienced at Midway has seen as an important turning point of the war in the Pacific. The authors attack the idea that this was because of the aircraft and aircrew losses that the Japanese experienced at Midway. In terms of aircraft, the number that were lost, around 250, was just a tiny percentage of the thousands that would be manufactured by the Japanese Navy. Obviously, nobody likes to lose air crews as well, but the actual number that were lost by the Japanese was actually not as massive as might be expected. 
Many of the aviators from the Japanese carriers were actually recovered. Uh, remember, a lot of the aircraft were actually downed on the carrier, not in the air, where maybe the, the aircrew would have been lost. And the carriers took many hours to sink or be scuttled, which allowed large numbers of those on the ships to escape, especially pilots and those sort of in the upper reaches of the ship, but maybe not directly involved with where the bombs hit. The authors instead put the blame for the problems that Japanese naval aviation would have when it came to trained pilots, not on Midway, but on the long attritional battles in the South Pacific during the last six months of 1942. These operations would see the remaining cadres of pre-war trained aviators drastically reduced, both numerically and in terms of combat effectiveness, due to simple exhaustion. The authors also make a note that the most important thing that the Japanese lost were the carriers themselves, something that had far-reaching and critical consequences on Japanese naval plans and completely destroyed their ability to project power across the vast Pacific in the months and years that followed. They would essentially never recover from losing these carriers. They would recover the planes, they would recover in pilot numbers, but they would never get the ships back. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When it comes to an evaluation of how well the authors did when it comes to crafting a book that people will theoretically read, which is important, and if you've read some of the books that I've read for the podcast, let me tell you, it is low on the list of some people's priorities. Well, in this case, I have only two mild complaints. One of the things that I generally dislike in books which build themselves as some sort of major reevaluation of accepted narratives is that they can often feel like they are directly attacking a single author or a single work. Shattered Sword absolutely falls into this category, with their sights set directly on Misuo Fuchida and his work The Battle That Doomed Japan. So many of the criticisms that the book levels against the normal history told about the battle are directly targeted at Fuchida, which makes sense because, you know, the battle that doomed Japan is kind of a foundational source for the Battle of Midway, and it certainly has its problems when it comes to accurate history, and it's been used by many historians over the years as a source of kind of uncritically, and so a lot of those problems have sort of 
propagated forward. But I think that at times the author take the direct targeting of the book a bit too far. Several times throughout the book, they adopt a structure where they pull a direct quote from Fuchida just so that they can tear it down and talk about how it is wrong. I understand the urge to do that, but at times it feels to me almost like approaching like snarky Reddit post categories or, or something similar. I really feel that they could have established the idea that Fuchida's account was flawed without such like a sentence-by-sentence attack. Another slight downside of the book is its extreme focus on the actions of the Japanese. I think it would have been a better book if it had spent a bit more time on the actions of the Americans, something that really only enters the narrative as a way of putting enough context around their air raids on the Japanese fleet. This is also not just me as an American wanting to see more American actions discussed in greater detail. But I also feel that there is a a real missed opportunity here. A deeper understanding of American actions and intentions would have provided a better picture of the myths that the authors were attempting to dispel. I think this is felt most acutely when it comes to a full appreciation of what the American plan for Midway was and what they knew about Japanese intentions. There is a brief discussion of some of these signals, intelligence, and their plans to move carriers to Midway, But what is lacking is a deeper investigation into the carrier practices of the American Navy, other than strictly how it compared to the Japanese, and also how they planned to meet a Japanese incursion into the Central Pacific. I think it would have been good to kind of look at both sides when it comes to trying to talk about the battle and especially the myths that have kind of cropped up around it, most of which originate in America. With those criticisms out of the way, just to be clear, the book is fantastic. The authors manage to toe the line between like professional and conversation when it comes to like how the book is written. There are many instances where they break out of a strictly detached narrative tone and instead pose questions to the reader and almost make first-person comments about the source material and the events being discussed. It really reminded me of, of kind of the podcast or you know history podcasts in general in many ways. Many history podcasts that I personally listen to will spend 90% of their time, you know, in their narrative voice, talking about events, but will occasionally break into a direct conversation with the listener. The authors of this book do something similar. One specific instance occurs almost at the very end of the book when discussing the consequences of Midway. One of the authors makes a joke about the other really not liking counterfactual or speculative history. Beyond just often being funny in this way, I think the small asides are a good reminder that this book, like any other, was written by real people. This is such an important fact to remember when reading and listening to any history, because those people bring their own perspectives and biases to their writing. Another piece of the book that I quite like is the detail and focus on the run-up to the battle on the Japanese side. This includes a lot of detail not just on the final plans for the battle, but how they arrived at them and also how those plans were influenced both by personal opinions among the naval staff, as well as tensions between the army and navy. As a person who has for many, many years played historical strategy and war games, although not as much as I would like, it is interesting to hear how the Japanese used war games to plan for the battle, and then some of the mistakes they made in those war games that allowed them to ignore some problems with their overall plan. One of the shortcomings identified with these exercises can be summarized by an American post-war study that's described in the book like this. Quote, turning to the Americans and their perceived reasons for Japanese defeat, 
the very technical post-war study conducted by the U.S. Naval War College rightfully cited the overconfidence of Japanese forces. Likewise, Yamamoto's excessive reliance on the element of surprise in developing his plans was carefully noted. In the War College's opinion, a truly cardinal sin was Yamamoto's designing his plans around America's perceived intentions rather than their capabilities. End quote. One final compliment I will give to the book is based around a discussion that happens just in the last chapter or so in the book, uh, around fixing the Japanese battle plan and addressing the mistakes that the Japanese made along the way. This gets brought up all the time when talking about Midway or talking about any other action of the Second World War. The authors really attack the idea of criticizing specific mistakes and suggesting different actions that could have been taken at those moments. In an explanation that really spoke to me and how I personally approach history, they made the argument that you have to take a larger view about why those decisions were made. Military commanders almost always make decisions based on the doctrine and training of the military they are a part of. To give a specific example cited in the book for this phenomenon, a frequent criticism of Admiral Nagumo, the officer in charge of the Japanese carriers, is that he did not order an instant strike with whatever was available as soon as the American carriers were spotted by Japanese scouts. Instead of launching a strike with the aircraft ready to go at the moment, he instead opted to wait while those that had been set up for ground attack were reconfigured for anti-ship operations, thus delaying the strike, and then they got attacked by American aircraft. Now this decision is frequently criticized, because in retrospect, that would be the only moment that many of those planes could have been launched due to the American strike that was on its way at that very moment. Nagumo would never make that choice, though, because it would have gone against everything that the Japanese believed in the realm of carrier operations. A full strike made up of the correct proportions of different types of aircraft was the only attack that the Japanese Navy believed could be successful. Was this a problem for the Japanese at Midway? Absolutely. But to alter those decisions requires a far wider and deeper conversation than just Admiral Nagumo should have done X, Y, or Z. This was really interesting to read for, for me personally at this exact moment where the podcast is and sort of what's going to be covered over the next year, because there will be many discussions that are in the podcast or about sort of how militaries were defeated and how to place blame for that defeat. There's, there's going to be a lot of defeats <laughs> over the next hundred episodes of the podcast. A preview of what this might look like on the podcast is the Maginot Line episode that released a couple months ago now. But basically, when looking at events and discussing alternatives, it is critical not just to consider the decisions kind of at the end of the chain or, or in a vacuum, but instead to look at all of the decisions that led up to that one being made. You can't just change the last part, uh, you know, step 400 on, on a decision chain that, that could go back decades even. And this is what happens to the Japanese at Midway. They have structures, they have processes, they have procedures that they believe give them the best chance at winning a carrier aviation battle. The problem is they were just exactly the wrong ones for Midway, although they had been quite good in everything up to that point. In conclusion, Shattered Sword lives up to the hype. It's well-written, which makes it easy to read. It does a great job of presenting its arguments and walking their reader through the logic of those arguments and then also kind of attacks some of the things that often get brought up in history conversations in general, especially on the internet, where maybe the conversations are of a 
median equality that is much lower than in other forms of discussion. Basically, highly recommended. Check it out if you haven't. As always, let me know if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or concerns, especially on this episode, which is something new. I'd love to hear what you think about it in the comments down below on the Patreon page. Thank you and have a wonderful evening, morning, or whatever time it is when you're listening to this.